0: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
2: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on a day when we got another great show for you. I got BC Health Minister Adrian Dick standing by. We're going to go to him in a moment lots of new developments today in the covid 19 pandemic including finance minister carol james announcing new measures at this hour to help struggling municipalities remember vancouver mayor kennedy stewart asked for that immediate bailout from the province he wanted 200 million dollars will he get that money today we're gonna have the latest for you on that also in ottawa this morning prime minister justin trudeau just announced a new assistance package for businesses loans and assistance with commercial rent yesterday trudeau announced expanded eligibility for the two thousand dollar a month emergency response benefit if you have questions about these assistance programs eligibility how to apply how much money you can get when would you get the money make sure you keep it locked right here we're going to answer your questions on the show today all right let's kick it off with our continuing focus now on the story of our lives here the covid 19 pandemic my guest is bc health minister adrian dix minister thanks for coming on hey good morning mike good morning to you let's start with where we're at in the in the fight uh, against this virus right now you announced 44 new confirmed cases yesterday three new deaths from the virus we continue to see these new infections and sadly new fatalities, but the numbers look encouraging, right? Like we we because we have not got that huge surge in cases that everybody feared. So where are we at today in flattening the curve and and fighting this thing?
3: Well, in some areas, it's it's promising. Uh, we have 1,561 confirmed cases. We have 955 people who've recovered. Uh, from COVID-19, which is a tribute to them and to community health and efforts that are taking place. There are 131 people in hospital and just to put that in context, about a week ago, that number was 149, so that's good news. We have about 59 people who are in ICU or in critical care and that at its height um last week, in the middle of last week, was about 72. So there's progress in some of these areas. And what it shows is that all of the sacrifices that people listening to us are making are having some positive effect. And we're going to share, update the modeling we do about this. And I think I think if we talked about modeling a couple of months ago, I don't think we would have had a lot of interest. But there's a lot of interest by everybody now in these things. Three weeks ago, we shared the modeling, the information on which we base our decisions. We shared three weeks ago. We're going to update that tomorrow. Dr. Bonnie Henry and myself and uh, Health Deputy Minister Stephen Brown are going to update that tomorrow to say, people, here's where we are and uh, here's the effect of the measures we've been taking.
2: Okay. Obviously, you don't want to scoop your your story yourself for tomorrow, but but Premier John Horgan yesterday said that he anticipates that the information you you give out tomorrow will be a a cause for celebration. Is that the way you look at it, too?
3: Oh, I I don't think celebration is the word that I would use. Uh, I'd never disagree with the Premier, of course, Mike, but but I think, um, you know, look, we've been announcing people passing away, and... um, And I'll tell I'll tell you this: that if we just look at long term care, our forty seven people have passed away of our of our uh, seventy five deaths in the province. Forty seven long term care. But it's not just people who pass away from COVID nineteen. You know, everybody in your audience who has a family member in long term care or, or a friend and can't visit them right now. We have people who are also passing away in long term care, not from COVID nineteen, that are more alone than they would be in that moment because of COVID nineteen. So. Um, uh, Everything about this matter uh, makes us all, the Premier, myself, everybody else, feel humble because while I think we're taking many of the right steps in B.C., this is is a terrible situation and people are making profound sacrifices in their lives. I think what the evidence will show tomorrow is what we've been showing every day in our briefings, which is that uh, the measures that have been taken are having effect but we've got to make sure that there's not a surge in cases that would throw us off and just as an example mike you the mission uh, institute i think the last time we talked that wasn't an issue i think we talked about a week ago uh, on air and um and since then we've had 47 cases in that one institution and potentially many more to come uh, because we're still in the incubation period so it shows what can happen just in one place, just in one week, uh, and why we we can't um, take our foot off the gas yet.
2: Thank you for bringing it back to the gravity of the situation because I agree with with you that every death is a tragic death. I I think the question, though, on everyone's mind is, when is it going to be over? When can we go back to normal? And yesterday, the Premier mentioned that the start-up of the province, in his words, was maybe in the not-too-distant future. Is it possible we could see some relaxations of the restrictions that have been put in place soon
3: well first of all it depends what you mean by normal like we're not going to be back to normal until there's a vaccine and there's um there's we develop some herd immunity from this as a society so that the it, it may be a new normal but it won't be the normal of january right just just first of all we're going to be dealing with this for months and months and months to come and so what we want to do is follow the science and the evidence at every stage. That's what led us to test more early in January and February than virtually anywhere else in North America, I think anywhere else in North America, to try and break up links with transmission. So again, we've got to do the same thing now. And you see uh, different arguments being made. Last weekend, we've heard a lot of people say, well, the traffic on major ferry routes is down 92%, but we need to take it down further, right, on the one hand. And on the other hand, people, of course, expressing concern about what's happening. What I can tell you is that we, we hear the challenge, right? When we cancel classes for kids, uh, that is a health consequence. When we cancel surgeries, it has a health consequence. When we don't let people visit their people in long-term care, they have health consequences. And they have to be weighed against every day um, the impact of COVID-19. And that's what we've tried to do in this process. But it's not going to be easy. And the next month is going to be as hard in many ways as the last month. And we're going to have to just provide everybody the information, be transparent about what we're trying to do, and um, and hope that they're listening to us.
2: Speaking to B.C. Health Minister Adrian Dix, I, I think you raised a, a critical issue there about the balance and, and the trade-offs that are being made as we continue to have the, the restrictions in place. And on, on the one hand, we've had 75 deaths, which is tragic, of course. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said yesterday she, she expects about 1%, I believe, of the BC population could be infected by the virus at, at this point. Now, you compare that to some of the things you just mentioned, the economic devastations that's being caused, half a million kids out of school, um, some of the other anxiety that, and troubles and, and hardships that people are going through. At what point do you, in that balancing act that you talk about, do you start thinking, okay, we've got to start opening things up again because there, there's damage on the other side as well?
3: No, I don't think that's the way we should look at it. I mean, we have all of those issues and we have COVID-19. And opening it up too soon will negatively affect all those things again, right, if we take the wrong steps. So what we have to, to, we have to look at in a very serious way is what we can do safely, so every industry, so we got to imagine an industry that's important in B.C., take, the, say, the film industry, how at some point in the future, if we were to start to relaunch production in B.C., how can we do that safely? In B.C., there's been lots of criticism. You've heard it, Mike. I've heard about it in the last few weeks, that we haven't shut down construction. Yes. Well, there's a, there's a reason for that. We feel that we can do it safely and safely. We've worked with the industry to do that. And for the, I think for the most part that that's happened, right? And that also means that all the people working in construction still are working and bringing home paychecks, which is so important to their health and the health of their families, right? And so this is a balance in every case. But what we need to do right now, I think I said, I think it was in the legislature in that short sitting. So I was asked by the opposition, you know, when, uh, when, when can we reopen? I've been asked this question regularly. And I said, there is zero chance that things will change, the measures will change before the end of April, and that remains true. But what we need to do now, all of us, is start the planning of how we might make these changes together so that we can stay as safe as possible while reopening um, life in the community for all the reasons we want, for the people waiting for surgery, for the kids who need to uh, get more educational support for others, right? We need to do all these things. And I think what Dr. Henry has done that people have respected, is we've taken a science-based approach to everything. And that means we haven't closed everything down. And sometimes we've been criticized for that. You've heard some of that criticism, Mike, right? We heard it this weekend. But on the one hand, but take the measures we need to take, which are huge sacrifices for people to stop the spread of this disease. And you only have to look at New York or Seattle or Italy or anywhere else to know what can happen when you don't do that.
2: Okay, is it possible, Speak. Uh, go back to the school system for a minute, you got all these kids out of school, is it possible that kids could be back in the classroom before the end of this school year? That was a possibility that was raised yesterday, and I hear some people who are enthusiastic about that idea, and others who think that's too risky. Your thoughts?
3: Well, I, I think we have to work our th- way through these things. I mean, what we've done is cancel classes, but continue to try and engage with children. There are some children who are getting... More supports now. We've talked about the need, for example, to support families of healthcare workers in these times, right? And so, what we have to do at every stage, and um, this will be frustrating, is to be transparent about what we know. So, what are the considerations? And then work it through it. And if something such as that can be done safely, then that might be a possibility. But, you know, we're not there yet, we're not there now. Uh, and so my message to everyone is Dr. Henry's message, one of her mottos that I like the most, which is this is for now, not forever. But the adjustments we're going to have to make are real. There is no been, been, going back to normal is not the old normal. It will be a new normal.
2: Thank you for coming on. Hey, anytime. Take care. Eh? I, I appreciate it. Same to you. That is Adrian Dix. He's BC's Minister of Health with the latest on the COVID-19 pandemic. And let's talk about the situation in the city of Vancouver. And you heard the plea from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart for help. He says the city is bleeding money. They are losing millions of dollars. He is seeking immediate help from both levels of government, appealing to the provincial government for, the, for a bailout, also the feds. He wants help doesn't seem to be getting what he's wanted uh, what he wants so far now this morning bc finance minister carol james did announce some measures to help uh municipalities and in, including uh measures to help municipalities borrow and dip into their commercial or into their uh, fiscal reserves which will certainly help but certainly not the bailout that the mayor had been asking for now have a listen to this i kennedy stewart was my guest on yesterday's show and when he talks about the possibility of laying off firefighters, police officers, other first responders as the city faces this financial crunch. Look, he says he's just being honest. He's just being transparent. Here he is.
3: We're being very open about our financial situation at the city, uh, having a a long discussion about it yesterday. Uh, In total, our worst-case scenario would be about a half a billion dollar operating uh, revenue loss which would be financially devastating and i think it's my job as mayor to lay that out i'm just gonna have to keep telling the public the truth
2: okay let's check in now with sarah kirby young she's a vancouver city councillor i'm very pleased she could come on councillor thanks for doing this good morning mike how are you I'm, i'm good thanks for thanks for coming on what do you think about uh... mayor kennedy stewart's plea here for for assistance he says he's just being honest and straight with the people about the crisis that the city is in your thoughts
4: Uh, I I think that uh, the city of Vancouver needs to look at its own house first and tighten our belt. I think that uh, doing politics through diplomacy versus press conference is probably a better way to go. Um, I don't think the approach has been helping our relationship with the provincial government. Um, And as we saw from the announcement this morning, they are recognizing the need to invest in businesses and directly in economic recovery. Um, And they also have had a lot to deal with. So they've been taking... Um, sort of the necessary approach of dealing with the immediate emergency steps, um, like around health and physical distancing. And now we're getting into the recovery strategy. So we're going to need to work together hand in hand to get through this. And I'd rather see a more collaborative approach. Um, I also think that it's caused a huge amount of concern for our frontline responders, like our firefighters, making those comments. Um, It's created a lot of anxiety for residents. And I think what they need right now is to look for the city for some steady leadership Um, and the signal that we are willing to step up and take a look at our own house and make some tough decisions.
2: Okay, his um, comment that the city might have to lay off first responders as a result of this crisis, I think it was a jarring one for sure, and I talked to him about that yesterday on the show, and let's have a listen to what he said. Here he is talking about the possibility of laying off cops and firefighters.
3: Look, if we have a half a billion dollar hit with no help from the federal and provincial governments, and it doesn't look like anything's coming, all options are going to be on the table here. It's not like a choice for us is that we cannot run deficits. Uh, The last thing, and of course, what I've said in many interviews is why we need help is because we absolutely cannot lay off first responders in the middle of, of this pandemic.
2: Okay, I don't know why he would even mention it as a possibility of laying off police officers and firefighters if it's, it's obviously not going to happen. How do you interpret his remarks here? Is he, it's kind of a bargaining chip to try and get money from the province?
4: So, so a few thoughts. So first of all, I want to say thank you uh, to our firefighters and our first responders, police, hospital workers, because they are the ones that are in harm's way. A lot of us get the benefit of working at home. Um, And they don't get to do that. They're actually out there and they're exposed and they are doing, you know, incredible work there. So I think we should be thanking them and and not adding to their stress. I also think it's important to note that the fire chief, Darrell Reid, when we had our last budget deliberation at City Council, um, shared, and this is an incredibly astonishing thing to think about, that we have less firefighters today in the city of Vancouver on any given shift than we did in 1968, They had not kept pace in terms of increasing. They used to have 6,000 emergencies per year then. They now have 10 times more than that. And we know a lot of them are really complex. So the growth in a lot of the staff of the city um, has not been in our firefighters. And the one increase that council did approve in December was was overdue by decades. And we only had one year of that in terms of expenses. So that's not where the growth in cost and expenses has come from. um, And I don't think that's the signal that we want to be sending right now.
2: Speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young, where do you what do you think the city should do here to get through this this tough patch? I mean, obviously the city is losing money. I don't think you can dispute that. What do you think the city should do about it?
4: I think we should go back to basics. Uh, we had a council meeting this week, as everybody knows, and uh, we had the report, uh, called the advocacy report, or advocacy not action, um, to the provincial government to ask for operating grants and, and cash bailouts to municipalities. Um, But we didn't have anything in there that talked about what are we going to do to tighten our own belt. And so I added an amendment to say, let's have staff come back with a plan to balance the 2020 budget, knowing we're going to have reduced revenue. Let's focus first on on the basics, core services, police, fire, sanitation, garbage pickup, sewers, all of those things that we are mandated to do that the municipal government has to do in the Vancouver Charter. Let's see what that looks like in terms of numbers um, and see if that matches up with what we think the revenue is going to be. Um, And council did not support They supported coming back with options for balanced budget. They did not support starting with the basics. And unfortunately, that's what we're going to have to do. These are tough times.
2: The provincial government laid out some assistance measures this morning, and this is just fresh off the presses here with uh, Finance Minister Carol James just announcing this within the last hour. And some of the measures that the province announced this morning would be to allow local governments to borrow money, interest-free from their existing capital reserves, to help uh, meet their meet their costs, and I know something that's something that municipalities have been asking for. So I I guess that's good. She also announced delaying provincial tax remittances until the end of the year. So as the city collects provincial school taxes, they won't have to turn it over to the province uh, for right away. And and I guess that will help too. But one of the things that jumped out at me there, councillor, for your thoughts is that a lot of municipalities have been asking the province to expand property tax deferrals to allow people to put off paying their property taxes and the province would fund that to cities instead. And that's not in this announcement here this morning. Do you think that's something the province should be considering? And do you think what the province is doing here is adequate or enough?
4: Well, first of all, let's talk about the positive. Um, and I, I appreciate the announcement because I think they're putting the focus where it needs to be, which is helping the people that need it. And that's our business and economic recovery. That's what I see in this announcement this morning. Um, I don't see reference to the request to defer the property to to expand the property tax deferment program to include residents, but that may come in another announcement. So let's keep having those conversations. What's good here is that rather than focusing on the municipalities, we're focusing on the businesses and the economy first to kickstart it and make sure that they have the ability to uh, try to keep going and stay afloat through this. So municipalities will have to model because of tw- their finances, a 25% reduction in the commercial tax um, will hit our budget. And that's why I'm advocating for us to start with what are the basics of delivering good service in the city um, so that we can weather through this as well. Um, I'm, I don't think that uh, it necessarily means the province is going to say no. Um, and I really encourage and hope that they look at that to uh, expand that property tax deferral program for residences as well.
2: Okay. Let me ask you about another big story in in the city this morning and that's the the crisis being faced by the Vancouver Aquarium and the CEO there saying that the aquarium could close permanently within 2 months unless they receive a, a bailout and that the aquarium is losing money after being forced to shut down. Let's have a little listen here to the CEO, Lasse gustafson and here he is uh, talking about the crisis facing the Vancouver Aquarium.
3: So, since the 17th of March,
5: we've cut all costs that we possibly can cut, um,
6: including laying off, hopefully temporarily, 343 people, asking others to go down, working part time. Uh, but unlike many other organizations, we can't switch off the light, lock the door, and go home. Uh, we have 70,000 animals in the aquarium. Man. We love them, and we care for them, and we're not going to leave them alone.
2: Okay, 70,000 animals in this aquarium. They're now talking about shutting down permanently. Counselor, what do you think about this? I mean, this is an institution in our city. What, what can anybody? What can we do about it? What can government do about it?
4: Well, I mean, I'll offer a few thoughts. I'm I'm actually the former vice president of the Vancouver Aquarium, so I'm I'm pretty familiar with this organization. Um, And I also sit on the board of trustees for the Vancouver Art Gallery. I know that the Art Gallery has uh, successfully applied for the CERB program and are using that to weather through the storm with a 75% relief uh, towards salaries. Um, The CEO of the aquarium mentioned that they laid off a lot of their staff. I I would like to ask questions around... Are they going to, uh, have they applied for that program and are they utilizing it? They do have the additional expense of the animals. They also have a great deal with the Vancouver Park Board after navigating through some of the troubles between the Park Board for the last few years and the aquarium over cetaceans that has granted them a rent relief um, on their lease in the Stanley Park for a year, year and a half. So they've got some pretty reduced costs that are managed well already. Um, They've also got a strong donor base. So it's, I know that's a beloved institution in Vancouver and they've got some smart people there. So I think they can look uh, for options in terms of, you know, maybe having some of those supporters help them weather through and meet that million dollars per month that they need.
2: All right. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith. As we continue our coverage and analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic, this virus has hit every province, every territory, thousands of confirmed cases, hundreds of deaths, but nowhere has this virus hit harder or with less mercy than the care homes for seniors across our country. When you take a look at the numbers on the outbreaks and the deaths at senior homes across Canada, it's staggering. It's brutal. You take a look at the numbers across the country, around half the deaths of care homes. Take a look at the numbers here in British Columbia. We've had 75 deaths in British Columbia so far, 47 of them are in long-term care facilities. Why is it happening? How is it spreading like a wildfire in our seniors' homes? What can we do to stop the spread of the virus in these facilities? Got a fantastic guest to talk about it, Carly Weeks, the very fine health reporter for The Globe and Mail, who's been doing just an absolutely awesome job in this. Carly, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, uh, y- your work on this has been terrific, and when we take a look at the outbreaks across across Canada, can you just break it down for me about the type of numbers that we're seeing and outbreaks we're seeing in care homes across Canada, and why is it happening?
7: Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's horrific, and the numbers are, are just staggering. So um, about half, uh, it depends on the province. In some provinces, it's actually, more than half of deaths are occurring in these care homes, Um and uh, overall, nationally, it is about, you know, that close to that half remark. Uh, in fact, there's modeling that the federal government released last week. They suggested that by today, we would see about 32,000 cases of confirmed COVID in Canada and uh, up to 700 deaths. So we are actually at 28,000 cases. We're below the number of cases they projected, but we're well above the number of deaths. We're cl- well over 1,000 deaths now. And so, and that's because... Um, these deaths that are occurring in long-term care facilities—it's just ripping through like wildfire, um, speaking to just a number of issues that have gone unchecked for years that are that have now kind of manifested itself in this growing crisis that that is yet to be under control.
2: Okay, how does it happen in, in care homes? I mean, we, we, we've been told from the beginning that obviously the the people who are most vulnerable to death from this virus are the elderly, especially if they have. Comorbidities or underlying health health concerns, but how does this virus get into the care facilities in the first place, and how did do why does it spread so rapidly?
7: Yeah, well, there's a couple of factors. So, I mean, one is that right from the beginning. There, a lot of care homes were still allowing sort of non-essential people to come in. So even though they did move, a lot of places moved fairly early on to clamp down on, on visitors and volunteers coming into facilities, there still wasn't a, an outright ban until we started to see some of these outbreaks occurring. And um, one of the other issues is that a lot of the seniors in these homes, they don't display the typical COVID symptoms that uh, other people may because their immune systems, tend to be so compromised. They they often don't develop the, the typical fever um, that a lot of others do. Like one of that's one of the hallmark features of COVID-19. And so um, there's perhaps even a, a slow recognition of some outbreaks in some areas and a slowness to test a lot of the people. So you have people coming into these facilities, you have atypical symptoms in seniors, and you also have staff members who tend to be working in multiple institutions. And so um, just a a whole bevy of these problems, you put it all together and it creates this tsunami. And, you know, provinces like BC did move early on to take over staffing of these care homes, um, you know, trying to stop what was going on. But it is so hard to, to... Stop these outbreaks once they take hold and so now in other provinces they're trying to say what can we do to, to protect those homes that haven't yet experienced an outbreak
2: okay i think that the point that you raised about the staff working at multiple facilities is a kind of a crucial component to this and you're right about british columbia i think bc may have been if not the first one of the very first provinces in canada to realize that when you have uh long-term care workers who are moving around from home to home to home and if they're exposed, if they are positive for the virus, I mean it's like just they're like a match going through various little tinder boxes and, and maybe infecting people at multiple homes. So BC very early on said, we gotta stop this. We can't allow these workers to be working at multiple facilities. We have to confine them to working at, at a single facility. It's it's easier said than done, but they they have gotten going on it and they've made a lot of progress on it. What is the situation with that in the rest of Canada? Because it seems like other provinces have been slow uh, to, to yes. bring in similar measures.
7: Yeah, they have been slow. And, and, and part of the reason is that it, it, you alluded to it's a complicated issue because a lot of these workers... Um, you know, typically a lot of workers in care homes, uh, much like people who are on the front lines, like, you know, grocery store workers and things like that, they, they tend not to be very well paid. Um, they often also- right probably haven't received the training that they that's needed in infection prevention and control and so that's why they work in you know a lot of these different homes and that kind of a thing and you see these outbreaks occurring and so provinces like ontario are now basically i mean in ontario there's been so many different outbreaks and it's like every day there's a new hot spot that pops up and it's just horrifying and now they're saying okay finally we're gonna you know ban people from working in more than one place so how are they going to you know make up for their lost income how are they going to enforce this what are some of the other rules that Will be in place. And, and we're hearing today from some of my colleagues reporting on this that there's already too many loopholes in these new rules that are going to still allow too many people traveling from institution to institution. And so certainly it is complicated, but um, I mean, even something as simple as having the proper amount of personal protective equipment for these workers right. early on. I mean, in a lot of parts of Canada, there, was, there has been a big pushback to making sure everyone was masked, gowned, and gloved working in nursing homes.
2: Speaking to Carly Weeks, the health care reporter for The Globe and Mail, this is such a tragic situation, especially if you have a loved one in one of these facilities. Imagine if you have a mom or dad in, in a care home. You're not allowed to see them. You are worried uh, about them getting this virus. And uh, I've taken just heartbreaking calls from people on this show in the last couple of weeks who were just so worried about their parents and care homes, and some of them raising what I thought was pretty... Uh, significant concerns about the way things are operating like should they're speaking to that personal protective equipment shouldn't all the staff be required to to wear masks what about taking the temperature uh, of the staff when they show up to work to try and prevent someone who's positive for the virus potentially spreading it in that care home do you think there could be uh, greater restrictions and rules about the way these care homes are managed to, to stop this the spread of this virus in these homes
7: I think there needs to be, and I think that after this, there will be a a bit of a reckoning. Um, This has been a crisis that's been brewing for so long. Every year, there's there's outbreaks of influenza at care homes that that kill so many residents of these facilities. Uh, These are the kinds of scenarios that have played out year after year after year, and now they're getting maybe the attention that they need because of this crisis that we're in. So yes, why don't we have these mandatory policies in effect um, I talked to some experts this week. We suggest there are a couple of things you could you could start to do. I mean, we're no, we know now that testing is is finally being ramped up in Canada, so yeah. we need to do a lot more with testing. Get some people who don't have symptoms, get them tested. That's a controversial area still, but we know that people with COVID often have mild symptoms. If you're showing up to work and you're working with a vulnerable group, you either need to be tested or you need to be wearing, you know, all of that personal protective equipment to protect these vulnerable people. And stop residents from sharing rooms. They shouldn't be in sharing rooms anymore. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's just these minor, minor things that need to be done right away to to stop this spread.
2: As we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in care homes across Canada, and this is where this virus has really inflicted uh, the most brutal damage when you take a look at across the country. The very first fatality from COVID-19 was recorded in British Columbia, and it was at the Lynn Valley Care Center in North Vancouver. And ever since then, we have seen this virus just cut a path of destruction through care homes across the country. The Pinecrest Nursing Home in Cage in Ontario, 29 deaths. Residence Heron in Dorval, Quebec, Thirty-one deaths the centre d'hébergement la salle in montreal 77 infections there 26 people have died this is where this virus is really cutting home to the bone for sure carly weeks is the very fine global mail reporter who's been covering it let's take some phone calls here in the open line hiya colin
7: yeah. Hi, Mike. Uh,
3: hi. So back when uh, SARS hit, Teresa Tam, uh, she wrote a, um, a pandemic report that says this is what the government should do. So Taiwan and Korea did the same kind of thing. So relating to the healthcare or the elder homes is that they're supposed to have PPE protection in place. And then right. once the pandemic breaks out, that they're not supposed to be jumping from one place to another. And none of these were pro- like this was protocol and none of this happened anywhere across Canada. And, you know, she is the health person across Canada, so, you know, it's under her watch, and she didn't even do what she was uh, supposed to do. They tell Okay, the government well, I guess we...
2: Did we have an early warning about this, Carly?
7: You know, this is... Uh, this. I think that, that's a great point. We know that these nursing homes, these long-term care facilities, are extremely vulnerable in these types of scenarios, and there are pandemic plans that are in place for these kinds of things. Um, you know, one thing I'll say is that it's... It's up to provinces to make these kinds of rules happen. The federal government um, can issue guidelines, but it has to be the provinces that make these yeah. rules happen. Uh, we can ask, I think there's going to be a lot of questions that need to be asked about why more wasn't done earlier. I, right. I do think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of that discussion in the weeks and months and years ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's provincial jurisdiction for sure. But I, I think there's going to be, like you said, there's going to be a big discussion about that, about whether these these homes are adequately staffed. Do they have the necessary protective equipment? Are these facilities being properly cleaned? Are the residents of these facilities being properly treated? I mean, we're hearing horror stories out of some of these places now.
7: It's, it, it is. It's horrifying. And even inspections not being done. That's uh, you know one of the stories that's coming out of Ontario. A lot of these places haven't even been visited by inspectors to say, what are you know, what protocols and procedures do you have in place? And yeah, some of the stuff yeah. we're hearing, it's, it is. It's like something out of a horror movie.
2: Let's go back to the phone lines now. Maria on the open line. Hi.
1: Hi, Mike.
4: Hi. I'm coming from that perspective. I'm the mom of a daughter who is just finishing up the care home program. And the wages they
1: pay are deplorable. No wonder they can't find people to work in these homes and hospitals. And they're putting their lives at risk right now to take care of these vulnerable people in our society. It's horrible,
2: yeah. Carly, what are you hearing from the thank you for that call. What are you hearing from frontline workers here? I mean, she's right. I mean, these are people who are putting in their own health and lives on the line to take care of these these uh, often frail seniors who are so at risk here. What are you hearing from yes. those frontline workers? I mean, do they feel like they're getting enough protection?
7: I think the the uniform answer for the most part is no. And certainly some homes are better than others. Uh, definitely. But I think across the board, that's one message that's become quite clear is that these are people that are on the front lines they're um, putting themselves at risk. You know, there's a lot of care home workers who've become sick with COVID. And yes, they're they're underpaid, they're undervalued. And I think it speaks to this deeper issue of how we sort of view, um, you know, the elderly and, and people who have long-term or chronic illnesses or disabilities. The fact that we're allowing our vulnerable populations to sort of, um, you know, be taken over by this virus and, and the, the people that are trying to take care of them not being even given the right equipment. I mean, the fact they can't even get masks and gloves for the most part it just speaks to that level of sort of neglect of this area
2: 604-280-9898 is the number to call star 9898 toll free on your cell back to the phone lines hi dave
1: oh hi there listen i uh glad to speak to you mike I just want to ask, Carly, is there a significant difference or any difference at all between privately owned care homes and publicly run ones? Are publicly run ones better or worse than privately owned ones? This is an important point. And I guess you have pointed out my other question is the governments have not regulated these things in recent years, which is very bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great
7: question. So, you know, and I, I think every province is a little bit different, but we are hearing, and this is maybe anecdotal still to this point, that some publicly run ones do seem to be better in, in a lot of ways because they seem to have had more inspections. Uh, that, you know, could change jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So I don't want to. You know, say too much before we get the full story, which is still emerging, because yeah. there has been uh, some public care homes uh, recently that have that have also come out as having numerous numerous deaths. I mean, certainly Quebec seems to have a major problem in its private care homes. Um, in other provinces, it's a bit of a different situation. So that's something we're going to be hopefully digging into a little bit more, and um, and and trying to find this out. But yeah, I mean, I think there is a there is a reckoning coming, and and hopefully a big sea change.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're going to see fundamental change as well, especially here in British Columbia, where we had a, a previous liberal government that privatized a, a lot of facilities, uh, de-unionized them. Uh, obviously, you got an NDP government in power here now, and you can bet that you've, you've got an NDP government in British Columbia is looking closely at these these care homes now. They've moved in to sort of take over the employment uh, of, of these care homes. and I, I imagine you might see some of these uh, care homes brought back under kind of a provincial government umbrella, and perhaps more unionization of the staff there going forward. I got a feeling that you might see that in the days ahead. Yeah. Let's uh, squeeze in one more call here. Harriet on the open yeah. line. Hi.
0: Hi, Mike. Uh, I was hearing the other day about Dr. Oz speaking about air givers and anybody coming into the hospital situation uh not having proper covers on their shoes and they were talking about the soles of the shoes could possibly be bringing in the virus have Cur- anything have you heard anything about that Cur- Carly? curly so there
7: is some emerging research that's looking at that very this, that that issue, and in addition to things like how long can the virus survive on surfaces and, and things yeah. like that. So there are have studies that are coming out showing that shoes can carry the virus. It's not clear if that virus is viable, as in if you come in contact with the floor that's infected, and then someone touches your shoes, you know, would you then get yeah. infected? So I think that's an open question. The bigger the bigger piece, I think, for right now getting people who are on the front lines, masks, face shields, gowns, gloves, all of those things. The fact that that's still not happening.
2: Great job in this story. Thank you for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free.
5: This
3: episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
2: All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the assistance programs being rolled out once again today by both senior levels of government in Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as you heard on your news there. Announcing more measures to help small business through the pandemic crisis. Expanded loan eligibility. So this was a previously announced loan program that offers businesses up to $40,000 in a government-backed loan. It was previously available for businesses with a payroll between 20000 and $1.5 The government expanding the eligibility of that. As you also heard in the news there, the government bringing in federal assistance for businesses to pay their commercial rent. So that's going to appeal to, I think, to a lot of businesses who are having trouble paying the rent as their businesses, uh, suffer. Yesterday, uh, Trudeau announced expanded eligibility for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. This is one of the most popular programs the government has rolled out, that $2,000 a month. So the eligibility for that program now expanded. The provincial government announcing more help there uh, on, uh, for, businesses and individuals today too so many programs out there it's like a jungle out there if you're trying to figure this thing out so if you have questions uh, about these programs eligibility how to apply how much money is available when you would get the money now's the time to call me right now and we're going to try and answer as many of your questions as you can uh, 604-280-9898 is the number to call right now. I'm going to open the phone lines right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. My guest is Lior Zamfiro, the employment lawyer, and it's great to have him back on. Hi, Lior. Uh, Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You're a busy man these days uh, with all these new programs getting rolled out, Almost, it seems like almost on a daily basis. What did you think about the announcements from Trudeau today?
6: Uh, obviously, they, they are new programs, and, and when a new program is announced, as we learn more about it, it gets changed. Today's announcement, obviously, is one that's a very important one for business owners. Uh, there's been many announcements made previously about individuals, employees, workers, and now I think the government's turning its attention to business owners by uh, allowing businesses that pay commercial rent to to pay that rent to provide assistance and of course making it more accessible to get these government guaranteed uh, business loans small business loans so I think that is terrific that is exactly the type of help that businesses need it's probably not enough but it's a step in the right direction
2: yeah, especially for businesses that are struggling to survive through this thing and I guess the idea is to try and keep these businesses afloat so that they're able to ramp up ramp back up once' we're, this nightmare is over. And that commercial rent aspect, that's something I've been hearing a lot from small businesses saying like, look, you know, I got no cash flow. My customers are gone. My business is shut down. How can I pay the rent? So the government announcing a commercial rent package there today, which I, I think is uh, significant. What, what about the, uh, com- the, em- the emergency benefit, the $2,000 a month benefit and some of the changes that Trudeau announced there? What's, what's the crucial point there?
6: Well, there's really three things that are very crucial there. there there's there been some big gaps in the program. So the first thing is that it's going to apply to those seasonal workers that may have been off work for the season but now expected to be back to work and uh, couldn't be because no one's hiring, so they're going to qualify. Also, people that have may have gotten off EI uh, recently and would have expected to re enter the job market again cannot do so, so they would qualify. And perhaps the biggest one, although we need some more information, is that no longer is there a, a, la- a line in the sand that says you have to earn zero dollars in order to qualify for the CERB. Now the government's going to. To allow individuals to earn up to $1,000 a month and still qualify for the CERB. The idea being that you may have had your pay decreased, but you still can't necessarily live off of that, so we should provide assistance. So that is obviously a very important measure to wow. get to as many people as possible.
2: Wow, okay. So the eligibility being expanded there for sure, and that is one of the most popular programs that the government has brought out. Okay. Open the phone line, 604-280-9898, if you want to get your questions answered by an expert, Lior Zamfiro. Now's your chance, 604-280-9898. Toll free on your cell, it is star 9898. Let's go to your calls right now. Hi, Brian. Hi there. Hi, go ahead. Can you hear me, All right. Yeah.
3: Looking, yeah. I'm looking for help to understand, uh, just prior to the outbreak, um, I had a workplace accident and I'm being supported through uh, WorkSafe, probably for another week or two, after which the company that I worked with has closed the doors and uh, now I'm going to be out to lunch here. Um, my question is, being uh, co- currently collecting WorkSafe, um, am I eligible to apply or for that uh, that benefit which would really benefit me after uh, another week or two.
6: So, so here's my um, question: uh, Did you earn five thousand dollars in income over the last year, or in two thousand and nineteen? Yes. So the good news is that you would qualify because you had a job that you were going to go back to in in the near future. And the reason you're not going to be going back is because of the virus, because the company is now not able to bring you back because of this virus. So the good news is for you, yes, you would qualify for CERB. And this is an important one because you may not have qualified for regular EI in this situation, but you would qualify for the CERB. Right. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, Brian. Um, that that is yeah. good.
2: That is good news for you, Brian. Thank you for calling in, and I, I encourage you. Thank to you. Yeah, you bet. And I encourage you to, quali- uh, to apply for that for that money. Uh, Lee, are applying for that CERB, the emergency benefit? It's, I've talked to people who have had some pretty good experiences with going online and and getting their money pretty quickly. What What are you hearing from people?
6: I'm hearing that it's incredibly simple. In fact, it, it may be deceptively simple. And what I mean by that is pretty much anyone can go on there and apply and get the benefit. And we've talked exactly. about this before, but just because you get the benefit, physically get the money, doesn't necessarily mean you're entitled to the money. So you still have to yeah. un- make that distinction between applying and getting it and actually being entitled to it. But the process is very, very simple. And most people get it within a couple of days, which is terrific.
0: Yeah.
2: Julia on the open line. Hello. Oh,
0: hi, Mike. Um, What I'm wondering is, instead of bringing in temporary foreign workers, now that we've got so many Canadians unemployed, why not have them take those jobs? And that would lower the chance of the foreign workers bringing in the virus.
6: Lear, what do you think of that? Well, that's an interesting, interesting point. Certainly something to, to, uh, consider. I, I, think that the idea usually was that employers here were struggling to find people to do certain, certain amount of work, which is definitely an issue when, uh, unemployment rate is low. Perhaps right now you're, you're right. It's easier to find people. That's for employers to consider and perhaps the government can encourage employers to do that.
2: Brandon on the open line. Hello. Hello. Alright, go ahead. Uh my question
6: is
7: uh I have a friend that currently was uh wasn't making exactly $2000 a month but now that they're saying that he's allowed to work up to $1000 a month and collect the the $2000 a month right. he's worried that he's going to be making he's already making more money off of this than he was beforehand and he's worried if he's going to have to pay any of it back and how that's all going to work
6: we are so this is a very interesting point because here's the the, the the absurdity potentially of this program is if you were making a hundred uh eleven hundred dollars a month and now all of a sudden you've been reduced to a thousand dollars a month, the government seems to be saying because of this a hundred dollar a month reduction, you can qualify for another two thousand dollars a month, which actually makes no sense. But that's what the government seems to be saying. I don't know that they've thought this completely through. But if someone's pay has been reduced, but they're still making a thousand dollars as of yesterday, the government says, "Yeah, you qualify for the CRB so long as you've had at least five thousand dollars of income in the last year." I, I think that there's going to be some cracks in, this, in, the, in the government's logic and plan here that we'll find out more in the coming days. But as right. it stands, that's what we know. Okay. The, I think a key point there is. With Trudeau
2: announcing yesterday that okay if you can still make a thousand a month and still collect this extra money the two thousand you still have to demonstrate or you still have to in order to qualify your your income has to have been reduced though from the pandemic yeah. though correct?
6: It, it does. But if it was yeah. only reduced by $100, so yeah. you, you're working one less shift a week, it's reduced. But should you then get another 2000 And now you're making 3000 a month instead of the 1100 that you were before. But you still have to show a reduction an impact because of the virus.
2: Right. So even if you're, <laughs> okay, so you're saying your income had dropped 100 bucks a month because of the virus. Now you're going to pocket an extra 2000 a month under that scenario.
6: Well, yeah, if I was taking yeah. a few shifts somewhere, and now I'm working one less shift a week, so I lost 100 bucks. well, yeah. now is the government telling me, hey, good news, here's another 2000 Well, apparently, that's, that's what, what they're, they're saying. saying. Yes, that's what they're saying. That yeah. is what they're yeah, saying, exactly. the
2: 2000 a month, and that's, uh, that's a pretty good deal. Uh. Carol, hi, go ahead.
0: Yes, I, I hope I'm relevant to your program
5: today. I'm concerned about my grandson being laid off, and he's a full-blown diabetic. And his supplies are 600 a month. I'm wondering, is there anything available at, should he be laid off, which he is going to, that will help him out on that
0: uh, cost of it?
6: Well, the 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 good news is that most uh, employers will actually continue benefit coverage for employees even while on layoff, and uh, most employers have done that. I find, and if they're not planning, I I think your your son can talk to your, his employer about doing that. It's a fairly nominal cost for employers; it could be a hundred or two hundred dollars a month for the employer, so that may be of great value for your grandson. Beyond that, of course, he would, if he's losing his job because of the CRB and he's had uh, the $5,000 of income in the previous year, he can apply for the CRB and then hopefully that money helps defray some of the costs. Uh, wow. Beyond that, there would be no assistance. The best advice is to get his employer to continue his benefit coverage.
2: Good luck with that, Carol. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Hi, Ron.
3: Hi, Mike. I just had a quick question. I'm a single dad and I've got an 11-year-old son and because of this COVID-19, he's obviously not in school. So I'm kind of caught in a dilemma here of letting him stay home by himself, which I'm not comfortable with, um, and also having to work. Now, if I was to apply for that uh, emergency $2,000, I wouldn't pay my rent like you know how it is in Lower Mainland, let alone groceries and car payment, etc. So my question is now is if my hours are are, um, cut back a bit, and then I'd get the 2000 if I was able to. I'm not sure. I think I would uh, um, be able to get that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I have to ask your guess. But um, that extra $1,000, I could probably do it. So I'm just, I'm kind of caught in a rock in a hard place here. I'm not knowing what to do and being okay. a responsible parent. Okay, let's
2: see what Liar thinks. Liar.
6: Well, you're absolutely right that if you're staying at home to care for a child that's otherwise, that otherwise would be in school, then you are allowed to apply for the benefit. And as of yesterday, as we were talking about earlier, you can get the benefit and still earn up to $1,000 a month. So perhaps the best way to deal with this is to talk to your employer and say, well, I could be gone off completely, but I'd like to still help you. So why don't we find up, find a schedule that makes sense that provides some value to you employer, but also allows me to earn that $1,000. So if you can do the $1,000 and get the $2,000 from the government, hopefully that puts you in a position where you can uh, get by for a while.
2: Okay, Ron. Good luck with that. You know, but make sure you don't make sure you don't make $1,001 $1 a month, right?
6: Yeah, there, there's not much leeway here. You know, as yeah. usually is the case with the CRA. You know, there, there's no well. It's approximately this. If they say $1,000, they, they mean it.
2: Yeah, 1000 So if you're making $1,001 a month, then you wouldn't qualify. But if you're making $1,000, then you'd potentially qualify for the extra two grand a month. So that's the one thing to keep in mind. Marilyn on the open line. Hi there.
5: Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm not sure where I fall into. I'm I'm on income assistance, and I have been for, like, you know, a couple of months now, and my job search got sidelined with this COVID, and I also get a bit of my CPP nuts. And, um, you know, I'm living, like, you know, under $800 a month, so I don't know if there's anything I qualify for as well. I was doing occasional work up until March uh, where I would go and do housekeeping, and I claimed that on my income assistance form Right, because I think I'm allowed to make four hundred dollars a month, so I don't know if I qualify for anything.
6: Leor, so if you're an income assistance, the government automatically uh, is going to be paying you an extra three hundred dollar uh, uh, supplement uh, uh, during the months of April, May, and June. You don't actually have to apply for that; that should be automatic. So if you haven't received that, that is coming. So that that helps a bit now. You may actually be able to apply for the CRB, but only if this, this casual work that you did, if you lost it because of the virus, number one. And number two, if you've had $5,000 of income in the previous year. So if you kind of, if you just earned enough to meet that threshold, you can apply for the CRB. Beyond that, it's that $300 a month supplement, which is automatic.
2: Does that help you, Marilyn?
5: Think so because I did I did like I live on the poverty like below the poverty line basically right so yeah. um and I think I did make you know less than I think I let me less than ten thousand dollars that last year so but yeah well, if I get qualify. that
2: extra then you would qualify what if she okay can you we've only got a minute left Leor but if you're collecting EI can you also collect the emergency benefit too.
6: So no, it is one or the other. So if yeah. you're already on EI from a previous uh, unemployment, that you will get, continue to receive that EI. Uh, if you're if you lost your job since March the 15th, even if you applied for EI, you're going to get the CRB for up to four months, and if you're not working, you're going to automatically then switch to EI at that point. So you cannot get both at the same time. Okay, so you would take the higher the higher amount would be and, the, what well, you would do well you actually get the crb right now automatically and by the way that's okay. a good point mike for some people that could actually be less money because ei tops out at 550 or 60 a month whereas of course the crb tops out at 500 a month and they're both taxable
2: leor what's your uh, website people want to check out get more information
6: uh, employmentlawyer.ca uh, best place to check out or to get in contact with me
2: thanks for coming on anytime okay that's leor zamfiro the employment lawyer Thanks a lot for all your calls. I mean, there's so many people out there. I got so many questions. I hope we helped people out on that today. All right. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith. Have you ever heard about anybody breaking the social distancing rules? That can really tick people off. I got an email from a listener yesterday. He told me about some people in his neighborhood returned from an overseas trip. They came home. They're supposed to quarantine for two weeks. Everybody knows that, right? Those are the rules now. Instead... He said he saw the guy taking his dog for a walk. What? That's illegal, isn't it? So what are you supposed to do about that if you see someone breaking the rules? Well, some jurisdictions have set up a snitch line so you can report the rule breakers. Claire Allen, CKNW contributor, has been looking into that. Hi, Claire.
8: Hey, Mike. So, you know, you live in Victoria. Would you say that people in your neighborhood are doing a good job with social distancing?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's I, I would say I would say yes, yeah, everyone everyone's pretty much on board around where I live, yeah, that's
8: good. yeah, yeah. I live in a condo building and I've been really impressed with uh, how everyone has been dealing with it and how you know, my strata has been handling it. But, you know, there are some people who may not be following the, uh, the rules. And so, yeah, you're right. Some municipalities have turned to implementing a, um, a compliance line or a, a <laughs> COVID-19 snitch line, as some yes. people like to call it. So in March, the city of New Westminster actually set up one of those uh, lines, and they called it the COVID-19 compliance line. And so Kim Dayton, she's the manager of licensing and integrated services for the city of New Westminster, I called her up and asked her why the City of New West decided to set up the COVID-19 compliance line and what kind of calls the line has received.
0: Well, we found that a number of different departments were receiving calls from uh, New Westminster residents with questions and concerns, and they were coming to parks, they were coming to engineering operations, they were coming to bylaws, and it made sense to uh, centralize those complaints into one uh, one area so that a standardized um uh response could be given with up to date information that was accurate and consistent. So we set up the COVID compliance line and um that's what the role is for that line is to help public uh with information and, and inquiries they have and also if they want to report uh concerns they have about uh, lack of safety or lack of physical distancing. Most of the calls are regarding uh, parks and open spaces and people having concerns about what they perceive to be uh, violations of the health orders, uh, what they perceive to be unsafe uh, practices occurring in parks and open spaces. Um, Sometimes there is validity to the complaint um, and folks are gathering. uh, But for the most part, we're finding that um, the people that are there are all part of one family unit perhaps that they all live in the same residence Uh, we're finding that um, there's some misinformation sometimes so um, for a while um, dog parks were closed now they're open Uh, tennis courts were open now they're closed so sometimes people are just a little bit out of step with what's what's changed Um, recently gyms closed that was yesterday and um, prior to that, we were getting a lot of complaints about uh, fitness gyms being opened, and they were allowed to be open. So sometimes it's just clarifying information for the public. Interesting. Yeah. So, Mike, as you heard there, a lot of those calls
8: are sort of based around public spaces, right? Like right. parks, et cetera, stuff like that. When you're out and about, you might see some people that you don't think are adhering to the rules, but, uh, so you call the line. However, yeah. I wanted to know if, uh, if the city of New West had received any complaints about people not observing social distancing measures inside their private
0: residences. Ooh yes we have received complaints from folks living in multi-unit buildings uh resident rental buildings strata buildings and uh, it's not within our mandate to um help in that regard uh that's very much kind of an individual what how an individual lives in their residence is up to them and uh, we're not able to uh to to have any we have no authority in those situations
8: Yeah, right. so if you live in New West and you hear, you see like your neighbors having a house party, I'm not exactly sure who you would call at that point. Um, but they like said it's out of their jurisdiction to, to deal with those types of calls. Um, so while the COVID 19 compliance line in New West has received a large volume of calls, Mike, actually none of those calls have resulted in a ticket being
0: issued. Oh. Okay. We don't have uh, any authority to ticket at this point in time. So it's all about education. It's all about um, helping people to understand what's required and uh, give them suggestions on how they can do it better. But we have no authority at this time to ticket. Uh, Freezer Health inspectors have the ability to ticket in some cases, um, and if they were to ask the police to assist, they probably would have authority. But at this time, ticketing isn't, uh, isn't something that we're able to do.
2: Sounds a little bureaucratic.
8: Yeah, right? I know. (laughs) But um, in Vancouver, actually, the bylaw officers do have the ability to ticket. And uh, so far, I've heard that they've just handed out a lot of warnings, but no actual tickets. However, however, anecdotally, I've heard of other people in municipalities getting tickets for not adhering to social distancing rules. So that is possible. However, Kim Dayton wanted to say that so far, the residents of New West have been doing a great job um, of trying to adhere to social distancing measures. However, Mike, when it comes to these compliance lines or snitch lines, civil rights organizations have some concern. I spoke to Harsha Walia. She is the executive director of the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, and she says the concerns center around the purpose
1: of these lines. The utility of these lines really does depend on what each jurisdiction is deciding to do with them. If these lines are primarily focused on communication and education and and a way to mitigate confusion, that's definitely a positive step. If these lines are being used as they are in some jurisdictions, in Ontario, for example, as a way to increase policing um, and to particularly target communities who are already over-policed, and this becomes a way of just increasing those policing powers, then that is absolutely not effective. Um, and it increases the kind of criminalization and policing of the pandemic that is absolutely ineffective Um, And we've seen this in previous health crises. If we look at the AIDS crisis, if we look at SARS, et cetera, um, policing those pandemics were absolutely ineffective uh, and also resulted in the over-policing of certain communities. So uh, a snitch line that results in increased criminalization and surveillance is a huge concern, um, but that is a distinct objective than a line that might be intended to mitigate confusion through increased education.
8: Okay. But I mean, yeah, obviously, the government does have to, um, you know, make sure that citizens are following rules when it comes to social distancing. If, if we want to flatten the curve, like Dr. Bonnie has said and Dr. Teresa Tam has said. But so I asked um, Harsha how the Civil Liberties Association uh, would recommend the government monitor public health while ensuring the privacy of its citizens. And for Harsha Walia, she says it all comes down to education and communication.
1: The very first and most effective method that we've seen in Canada and that we've also seen at the international level, uh, to flatten the curve is really ones that focus on communication and education. Um, COVID-19 is a, it's a, a new phenomenon. It's, it's very challenging and causes a lot of confusion and panic in people. And oftentimes also the information is rapidly changing, right? Whether we need a mask or not, uh, how much distance is appropriate social distancing. Um, whether you need to completely stay in your home or whether you can, in fact, go out with people that you live with. That information has changed just in a few weeks. And so really the most effective method uh, to flatten the curve is to emphasize communication um, and to ensure that people can meaningfully socially distance. Uh, I believe and I think all kind of polls have indicated that people do want to flatten the curve. Uh, People are invested in public health, but in many instances, people simply don't have the means, whether that's because they don't have safe housing um, or they're not able to take time off work, whatever those reasons might be. So the most effective means of flattening the curve and ensuring that we're protecting people's privacy rights is, frankly, to flatten the inequality uh, that allows some people to socially distance and doesn't allow others to.
2: Well, I think maybe, Claire, it's an interesting report, Claire, for sure. I I think maybe it might come down to a little bit of common sense too. Like if you look into other jurisdictions where they're threatening people with bylaw infraction tickets, if they talk to their neighbor over their back fence or you had a beer in your driveway and your neighbor was the next door down and you said hi to them while you're sitting in the lawn chair, if, if that's worthy of a ticket, I mean, you know, that can be over the top. But the example that, you raised earlier, someone's throwing a house party or something mm-hmm. like that. I think that's obviously out of bounds and be worthy of a ticket. I don't know. Other. It seems like some other jurisdictions have gone a little bit more over the top than we have here in British Columbia.
8: Yeah. And I mean, of course, people's lives are on the line. So you understand yeah. why people are quite, you know, scared about people breaking the laws and endangering public health. But I think that we should all remember what Dr. Bonnie Henry has said a few times in her press conferences, which that we should try to practice some sort of compassion and understanding and not just, you know, jump on somebody right away if we think they're breaking the law or the public health guidelines, rather. Um, Because, you know, we have seen examples where people have been shamed, where where we don't know what's going on in that person's life. Like, for instance, a woman shopping with her children because she's a single mom. You don't know exactly. And people are doing the best that they can. But I think there is A role for these lines in our society right now because of the fact that the information is changing so quickly and people do have questions. So I think the BC Civil Liberties feels okay about it if it's about education and communication. And obviously, ticketing is a different issue.
2: Good stuff, Claire. Thanks for that.
8: Thanks, Mike.